Hello, everybody, and welcome to another of our irregular podcast extra interview specials. And this time, it's my pleasure to welcome back somebody we had on pretty much almost exactly coming up to <laughs> six months ago. It's author David L. Craddock. Welcome back. Ah, thank you for having me back. So last time we spoke, it was all about uh, Rocket Jump, Quake, and the golden age of first-person shooters. Now, uh, I know you tweeted something out earlier about uh, you may have an update for people. Now, it may be that we're recording this ahead of you being able to share that update, but people won't hear it until after you've shared the update. So could we have the update? (laughs) Sure, sure, absolutely. So Rocket Jump's campaign is still going up. It's still up a little bit because, well, for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, running a campaign for three months, which is unbound Mm. uh, minimum time, rather than the usual 30 days on Kickstarter is pretty hard. Um, I feel I promoted it well, but uh, things still stalled out, and it's it's still up, which is concerning to me because I would rather it have either funded and gone away or failed and mm-hmm. gone away. <laughs> I don't yeah. like dangling out there. Um, sure. so Unbound and I are – this started about a month and a half, two months ago, but there's been kind of a holdup, uh, not on my end, but um, they're, they're working to move it to a new platform uh and they've told me that that should be ready within the next couple of weeks uh mm-hmm. and we'll see where things go from there so if if any of your listeners backed it i apologize the book is done the content yep. is ready on my end we're just trying to figure out a few things on unbound's end before we go forward and then figure out how to keep promoting it cool excellent well we'll look forward to uh keeping on top of that and uh i guess people can yeah i mean if people have backed it they'll be getting email updates and that sort of thing um otherwise they can follow you on social media and that i guess uh but time doesn't stand still and uh because you finished that book uh even though people are still uh eagerly waiting to get their hands on it you of course got to crack on with something else so uh your next project that's really why you're here to talk to us today and this is going to be a follow-up to your earlier work stay a while and listen this will be book two heaven hell and secret cow levels uh so uh tell us well yeah tell us what's the skinny version of what this book's going to (laughs) feature it's funny you use the word skinny because this this book is anything but um i'll bet yeah yeah (laughs) i'll go back about let's see seven years and I had been working on Stay a While and Listen, which was then a single book, and, and just kind of telling my wife, you know, this book is is huge. It's covering roughly, you know, 1991 through, at the time it was 2005. And she said, you're going to want to split this up, I think. And I said, no, I can't do that. My work, mm. my art, and blah, blah, blah. But then <laughs> uh, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, the interesting thing about the Diablo trilogy and the interesting thing about Blizzard's production cycle is that, you know, their games come out uh, so far apart from one another. You know, StarCraft launched in spring 1998, StarCraft II in 2010. There's quite a gap there. And yeah. the interesting thing is um, that because of uh, those huge deltas between releases and sequels, um, the, the Blizzard culture and history and the people who work on the games changes so much. And, and that's certainly yeah. Diablo. You know, Diablo was made by a very small team of 15 people along with a lot of help from folks at Blizzard Entertainment who, who did things like they, they built Battle.net. Uh, they pushed Blizzard North, Condor at the time, to convert the game to real time. And then Diablo 2 was made by a 30, 40-plus team, and Blizzard North mm. was then no longer a small potatoes, uh, shoestring budget company. They were they were a big deal. And yeah. this book, Stay Well and Listen 2, 
kind of explores the company around that time uh, mm. and the subject such as, you know, uh, Diablo 2 is a huge game. It was, it was in production for about three years and there are I, almost half the book is about the making of that game and what happened during it. The 18 month crunch cycle, which cost people uh, a lot of personal relationships, sanity in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, but also uh, making of Starcraft and uh, the making of um, hitherto for unrevealed and unannounced projects such as Blizzard North's mysterious Project X, which was actually four or five mm-hmm. different projects by the time it was canceled. Um, mm-hmm. and also before, so, so Stay Well and Listen 2 goes from about uh, early 1997 to the summer of 2003 when uh, Dave Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer, the Blizzard North co-founders, were dismissed from the company and two-thirds of their staff were let go. And then Blizzard North kind of became, uh, it was it went under the auspices of uh, Blizzard Entertainment. Mm. Not that they're the bad guys, they were not, but there's there's a lot of stuff happening in that period of time. And but before that happened, uh, Blizzard North was actually working on an MMO-type rendition of Diablo 3, so I'd get in, into that as well. So there's wow. a lot of ground to cover. Stay well and listen to is always going to be the big one, and, and that's part of why it's taken so long that, and I, I've released... Uh, Let's see, the first book came out in 2013. I've done maybe eight to ten books since then. I just need palate cleansers <laughs> between projects. Right. Yeah. And a great lesson here to always listen to external voices, uh, starting with your better half, your life partner, whoever it may be, uh, and uh, take on board the fact that you might not ha- you might not have your own best interests at heart when it comes to projects like this. Well, it's it, it's so it's so important to listen to, to to people close to you, but just to anyone else because you're so close to these projects. I was so close to Stay Well and Listen that it really took my wife Amy saying, "Consider splitting this for me to step back and actually see." Yeah. Not only is that good for me, but it actually makes sense. Each each Stay Well and Listen will kind of cover a, a brand new or different era of Diablo in yeah. history. Mm, for sure. Uh, so I kind of asked you this, I think, about Rocket Jump, but why Blizzard? Uh, why or why StarCraft and Diablo? Is this an academic exercise because it's a story that hasn't been told? Is it a commercial venture because there are so many Blizzard fans out there? Or is it a case that these are subjects close to your heart because you played the games of this studio and you love them? First and foremost, they're, they're close to my heart. Um, I Diablo was my first Blizzard game, and I have kind of an interesting connection to the company. My uncle, Brad Mason, actually worked for Blizzard North for a time. Huh. Um, in fact, from from Diablo through the World of Warcraft Friends and Family Alpha, I beta tested all of their games uh, during the time he worked there. Um, right. And uh, I even have somewhere, I need, I've been meaning to get out and take pictures of it, but I have, there were two Diablo 1 betas. The one that was public was a black disc with gold lettering that read battle.net, which was interesting because that wasn't just the Diablo beta. Diablo was the first game to use Battle.net, and so it was as much a Battle.net beta as it was for Diablo. Mm. But I also have another one that was internal, which was a two-level, single-player-only demo where you could play as the warrior, and the the levels were still procedurally generated, but some things were set in stone. The demo always ended with the butcher. You always had that brute waiting for you on, on level two. Yeah. And I remember when that game came out... Um, I played it so often during that first summer vacation that when I would close my eyes at like four or five in the morning after going to bed, I would see the map grid on my eyelids. Um, yeah. And then around this time, 18 years ago, because we're talking on Friday, June 29th, which is, that happens to be the 18th 
anniversary of Diablo II's release. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, I was uh, for a graduation gift. I graduated high school on June 4th, 2000, which was my grandpa Mason's birthday. And for a graduation gift, my uncle Brad, who worked for Blizzard, um, this is before he joined them full time. He was a, a contractor, helped them with their networking. He flew me out to his place for a week. And one of the things we did was we spent an entire day at Blizzard North. I got to go and uh, meet people. I met Dave Brevik. I met Max Schaefer. I'm not sure where Eric Schaefer, the third co-founder, was. Mm -hmm. uh, they took me into their game room, and they had a they had a Japanese import PS2 hooked up and let me play Dead or Alive 2 Hardcore, which was really fun. Wow. And then one of the <laughs> one of the coolest things from that visit, well, I remember two things. I remember, first of all, there was a group of them standing around in the game room just kind of giving StarCraft 64 a lot of hell because, you know, it was the typical mm. master race card of how could you ever play an RTS on a console? You know, yeah. I remember that. Right. But um, another cool anecdote was um, my uncle's friend and now a friend of mine, John Morin, who was a programmer on Diablo and Diablo 2, took me into his office, booted up Diablo 2, typed in a developer command, and he spawned Diablo in the uh, Act 1 town. <laughs> and so I got to watch Diablo kind of rain havoc and run around killing NPCs and everything. So it was just kind of cool. And then two weeks later, the game shipped and I got, I got a collector's edition and there was another summer vacation very well spent. So it's, it's, these games are very, very dear to my heart. Clearly. I guess you're, we've got your uncle to thank for your, a lot of your passion for the, for the medium in general, have we? We do. Um, he's been, he's a father figure to me. He still is. Um, when I was growing up, he'd spend a lot of time with me. He sent me my first PCs, and he always told me um, he worked in he worked in IT. He still does, and he would always say, "David, just don't you know take a hammer to your computers, but play, experiment, learn." And whenever I'd run into a problem, minor or major, I could always call him. He'd help me fix it. He'd teach me on it. He got me started into on programming, um, all sorts of things. He was he was. Uh, I, I did some work for him. He didn't hire me. He had other people hire me, but I did some some writing for a game studio he had. They were rewriting Hellgate London. And oh. that's where I met uh, Eric Sexton, Michio Akamura, Kelly Johnson, and John Morin, um, who mm. had all worked at Blizzard North. And I got to work with those guys and spend time with them. And they were some of the first people I interviewed. And then my Uncle Brad uh, put me in touch with Dave Brevik. <laughs> I remember the, the night I called him, uh, he picked up and I go, Hi, Dave. My name is Dave, too. Isn't that cool? I, I want to write a book about Diablo. I interviewed <laughs> and took this breath. And he goes, uh, sure. And so <laughs> and so I lived in uh, Daly City at the time, which was about uh, 10 miles or so south of San Francisco. And I would drive a little further south to Gazillion, where Dave worked at the time. And this is these are some of my fondest memories of, of interviewing for this book. Uh, I would go in, talk to the receptionist. Dave would come down, and we would walk a mile, mile and a half or so to Starbucks, talking all the way. We'd get coffee, talk for another hour, walk back, talk. And it was as much catching up with someone who became a pretty good friend as it was interviewing him about you know these games that he made. So, yeah, that was kind of my next question, really, um, was uh, what access have you had when uh, researching this book to the major players? Um, but obviously you started making these friendships and sowing the seeds of these relationships a long, long time ago. I did, yeah. I lived in, in uh, San Francisco from 2007 through 2011. And uh, I started interviewing people there. And for the most part, I was able to talk to people face-to-face. -face. Uh, some people took convincing because Condor mm. and Blizzard North, their time there was very precious to them. If you if you read the Stay Well and Listen books, you'll find that these people 
uh, were as close as family, which which made some events that happen and that are documented in the book very difficult and, and painful mm. to catch up. Um, but I, I like to think I'm a pretty good interviewer by this point. And I had a lot of people say, you know, when I first started talking to you, I was very uncomfortable, but I'm always, I always have a smile on my face after we talk because you, you know, you don't bloodlet. We talk about the ugly stuff, but we also talk about the good stuff. It's a, it's a very well-rounded conversation. And, you know, I think a lot of times I'm getting, I'm giving them a chance to talk to a neutral third party rather than just amongst yeah. themselves, kind of reminiscing and remembering things, how maybe they remember them rather than as they happen. Bit of uh, therapy almost. Almost, almost. And, um, I, I take pride in that. I really love talking to people. I ask tough questions, but I also just, I think the number one rule to interviewing, uh, which you're doing right now, because I'm kind of a motor mouth, is, is just is just listening. And um, yeah, just over time, my my Rolodex just grew. I, I spent a lot of time driving up and down California, meeting with people, anyone out of state or overseas, I would just talk to them over Skype. Occasionally, I do interviews over email. Um all told, I've spoken to uh, over 60 or 70 people. So it's, wow. a very, it's a very well-rounded story. Most of those are from Blizzard North, but also um, quite a bit of access from Blizzard Entertainment with kind of a caveat. Uh, Blizzard, as of right now, we're working on this, but as of right now, they haven't officially participated because at one point I talked to them and they said, we want creative control. And I said, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Um, they said, well, thanks, but no thanks, but good luck. Uh, and I, I talked to my, my best source, probably been Patrick Wyatt, who was the vice president of R&D over there for a number of years and also their their second employee. So he had a very long tenured history. He was also part of the team who would recruit outside studios. So it was it was Pat Wyatt, as well as uh, the company's co-founder, Alan Adham, kind of their, their Dave Brevik, their lead designer. Who, who saw the potential in Diablo and moved to acquire uh, Condor and Blizzard North. Um, and I, I spoke to a lot of people formerly from Blizzard Entertainment to give me a lot of insight on the on the Warcraft, Starcraft, WoW, and you know Hearthstone side of, of things for these books. Right. I was going to ask you if uh, if there was uh, also the the other Blizzard franchises involved uh, in in your writings as well. Yeah, obviously you mentioned there that uh, folks are still connected, and uh, although it, in some ways, in in some ways, it's a long time ago. Some of these events, in some ways, it isn't. But did you? So you're saying you you managed to make people comfortable, and obviously they're they're aware that you're not, you know, you're a fan. You're not trying to write a, uh, you know, you're not taking a hatchet to it or or trying to you know spill the gossip. But did you find that the fact that a certain amount of time has passed did allow people to be a bit more kind of honest about the difficulties they may have had working on these, you know, almighty projects. Absolutely. I think a lot of, this is one of those time heals all wounds situations. And that's not to say there was, there's a lot of drama. There was a good bit, but I think that there were just a lot of things happened. Um, good, bad, and in between that, you know, you yeah. just expected to kind of look back on. And then often, oftentimes what I'll do is I will ask someone a question but I'll ask everyone that same question and then I'll go back and cross reference and say, Hey, you know, so-and-so remembers it this way or so-and-so mentioned this. And it's kind of like putting a piece together of a thousand piece puzzle where everyone has, you know, two or three pieces that you couldn't get from anyone else. Um, and so it's really been interesting to kind of go behind the proverbial wizard's curtain and, and learn mm. about how all this stuff came to be. 
anything especially uh, surprising? Obviously, you don't want to give away all the, the juice from the book, but um, was there anything which kind of really surprised you? We were, we were talking about this. Um, I don't know if this, this is a slight tangent, but um, and I'm not implying anything about any of the people you've interviewed here whatsoever, but we were talking about um, the sort of the art and the artist thing and how, how uh, among the team and how each of us has a diff- different sort of attitude to separating the art from the artist in talking about in cases where, you know, you if you find out that a certain game creator or direct movie director or whatever has, you know, has something in their, their personal life that doesn't, uh, doesn't tally well with you. But then I was thinking, you know, what if I found out, it turned out, say, Shigeru Miyamoto was not not the you know the lovely man he seems to be, or whatever. Would it could it stop me enjoying Mario? Um, but without sort of going that far into it, that did getting to know the people behind the game. Obviously, you kind of had an insight there already, but knowing some of the the challenges and difficulties, did it actually change or color your perspective of the, the works at all, or make you think about them in a different way? Um, it did change my perspective but i think over the better uh all for the better i think that oftentimes especially today when we all have such easy access to one another for better or worse um mm. we forget that creators are human uh and that they're flawed and you know i i think we discussed this i don't recall but that's that's actually part of the epilogue for rocket jump whereas yes yeah you know, there's just a lot a lot of stuff that happened but you know it's just a reminder that these these folks are all only human and it yeah. really it just it just gave me a an even deeper appreciation for the fact that these games exist at all, because the, the interesting thing, yeah. Diablo and Diablo two, especially were made by such small teams relative to today's 200 to a thousand plus sizes. And what that means is that everyone who worked on a game on a team that size got to leave a footprint. And now that I know people, I can kind of look, I, I can see their footprints. I know them. And, and readers have told me they have come to know them and they'll, they'll, they'll play Diablo 2 for the umpteenth time or Diablo 1 or StarCraft or Warcraft 2 and say, oh, now I know where that came from. And because I have an idea of this person, this person's personality, I get that that's totally a thing they would do. And, and that, mm. that's really, I think that's the main reason I love to, I, I do a lot of fiction as well, but I love to yeah. read nonfiction because it it reinforces that these aren't just characters. These aren't just names on a credit screen. They're, they're people. And I just love getting to, to learn about the people who make these things. It's, it's as fun for me to write and then go back and read myself as, as it has been for so many other people. I completely agree. And I've been somebody who's uh, just been in and around the the games industry, never properly in it, but uh, you know, as a fan and as somebody who's, created some stuff relating to it and done a little bit of work inside it I've, I've always had that perspective I think going all the way back really to the 80s magazines where they would just interview the people who were making the games um, on one-to-one and it would be that would be the person and and it's always stayed in my mind I wonder if a book like yours it it's almost like the kind of thing that I, I wish that that guy on the internet, the people who harangue the developers about not being consulted over every minute balance change of a game or, you know, sending death threats because some content is not there or is there or there's a bug or something like that. Um, books like this, I think, you know, even if 
those kind of people probably won't sit down and read this book, but maybe somehow the the ideas behind it will filter through. If say, if uh, I don't know, Eurogamer or Kotaku runs a piece about your book, maybe it will just you know sow that seed a little more in in these ravenous people's minds that there's the developers aren't just you know they're not just being lazy or or ignorant. They are they're doing the best they can in trying circumstances. Often, I, I do hope so because I, I think that the access that we all give one another to the world today is, is this double-edged sword. On the one hand, I think it's awesome. And most publishers would probably agree. It's awesome that yeah. you can have their own, their own Twitch stream, their own YouTube channel, their own social media manager, community managers who can, who can talk with fans still asynchronously, but more directly than ever. But on the other yeah. hand, that can give a lot of fans the idea that as you say, they are, they are entitled to be consulted and to be updated. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in, it, it's interesting because I, I think one of the reasons I, I love to write about books from the long, long ago, I guess it seems today, is mm. there those those communication channels didn't ex- exist, and so no. it, I think it allowed developers to speak to me a lot more honestly without public opinion really clouding their judgment of their own work. As as an example, you know, one thing I ask about anything I've ever written, any game I talk about, I ask, "What are you proudest of?" And Dave Brevik, I remember when I asked him that about Diablo, he was quiet for a long time, and then he cleared his throat and he said, you know, I don't talk about this often, but it is very difficult for me to go back and play the games I make because all yeah. I see are the flaws. And he's like, you, you know, yeah. I, I've, gone to, I've gone to awards dinners and ceremonies and brought home Game of the Year awards, but then I'll go on a forum mm. and I'll see, oh, this bug, really, it ruined my character, or man, the cheating and on Diablo 1's Battle.net just completely sapped my enthusiasm he's like yeah and then that's all he'll focus on and so yeah kind of as you said i i really hope that being able to hear directly from the people i talk to in this book will will make fans realize you know it's it's really difficult for any creative person to put something creative out there and have someone know that someone is kind of waiting to throw the first stone <laughs> i guess yeah yeah, and actually, this segues nicely into talking about the fans. So, uh, I'm not like I'm certainly no uh, Blizzard expert. I've never played WoW. Uh, I've played some Diablo, uh, and actually, really, that's that, and a little Overwatch, and really, that's that's about it. Um, but I get the feeling that Blizzard have obviously they have dabbled in other franchises and other genres, but really, they've got now they've got, I guess, their five main pillars of an rts an mmo diablo which i suppose is yeah rpg if you want uh the card game and the first person shooter mm-hmm. so they're all they're all quite you know different from one another obviously there are some links but do do you think there's a, a blizzard fan like somebody who uh is just a fan of everything they do as a creative uh monolith or are the games now so kind of diverse that can't really work in the same way especially as these are games which demand so much dedication in isolation that's a that's a great question i think that so much of it probably depends on a person's life situation uh using me as an example way back when i was a fan of everything blizzard did now that's not yeah i'm not now i still am but i'm 36 years old i'm married i'm working all the time i just don't have as much time unfortunately to play games which is the great irony of of writing about them oh yeah but you know when i was in high school and in college i mean 
my friend and I, I remember we camped out for, for Warcraft 3's launch in 2002. Mm. We were right there in the friends and family alpha playing WoW. Uh, I bought, uh, how old, just six to ten years ago, respectively, for Diablo 3 and StarCraft 2. My brother and I camped out waiting for those games. I mean, I, right. wow. I definitely think that, that Blizzard... What they've done, no matter what type of game you're into, whether you play one of them or all of them, is there is there is this such thing as a, a Blizzard touch. They just they mm. touch mm-hmm. finely polished, simple, like you know, easy to pick up but difficult to master games that I I certainly think as diverse as they have become, I certainly think it is it is possible to play all of them because I think Blizzard is masterful at calling you back to games. Here and there. As an example, almost a year ago now, Blizzard released StarCraft Remastered so that we saw a resurgence in that game as well. Yeah. Um, we'll have seasons of Diablo 3. So maybe you'll play in a season, you'll get tired of it, but then three, six, nine months later, you'll you'll get pulled right back in. Every time there's a new Hearthstone expansion, you know, those players want to get back into customizing their decks. And all the time, uh, Blizzard games are just so accessible that they're constantly attracting new fans. So I, I definitely think there's there's a market there for for everyone to keep up with all Blizzard games because I, I think they're very clever about not dropping a megaton, well, a nuke, a Terran nuke, we'll say. Uh, on mm-hmm. here, four new games on the same day. They're, they're all very spaced out very well, and and maybe that's also you know they have this history of supporting their games for for years. Even oh, a long time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just within the past year or so, both StarCraft and Diablo two got new patches. So. Yeah. You know, that's, I, yeah. they, they support games for so long and they also take their time between sequels that I think everyone has time to not only enjoy all Blizzard games, but enjoy them without feeling like they're rushing from one thing onto the next, with, which I think is a big problem with annualized games. Like, I don't really keep mm-hmm. up with Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed, but this is about the time of year where if I hadn't played last year's, I just probably wouldn't bother because there's a new one around the corner. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting you should mention, because I was just thinking about one of the things about being, say, if you considered yourself, you were uh, somebody who is a uh, a Blizzard fan. Uh, I forgot Heroes of the Storm in, in my rundown as well, of course, because uh, that's a, a world that I know very little about. Um, but actually, Call of Duty is something that now appears on your Battle.net uh, dashboard as you boot it up, along with Destiny 2 um, under the Activision brand. So that there is some... Uh, I don't know if it's muddying of the waters, but there might be some cross-pollination there. It's an odd one because obviously the player, you would normally think that, I mean, I'm a big fan of lots of different genres, but normally somebody who is a player of a game like Overwatch wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think they'd be a fan of Hearthstone, but maybe maybe in, in the land of Blizzard, things are slightly different. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that there are, there are other ways they encourage you to just kind of, jump into the blizzard ecosystem i mean every august we have blitz blizzcon which is just kind of a celebration of right yeah blizzard. you know i have friends who who post like yeah i got my blizzcon tickets and they, he's, he, he cosplays he's into all of their games it's definitely yeah. like they're almost like the nintendo of pc games they could open their own amusement park mm-hmm. and you could totally mm-hmm. find it yeah there's so many different worlds and characters and just stuff. that would be huge actually <laughs> it would, i would go i mean yeah yeah it'd be great i would hesitate to get an any diablo ride like roller coaster to hell like wow where's that gonna go but um yeah you know they're they're just they are they are master managers of the, their brand over there yeah so you mentioned starcraft uh remastered uh well i wonder what your feelings were about the uh the 
soon to be uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly when it is due out but the classic uh, World of Warcraft which is, is effectively going to give players access to kind of the last best patch before they started adding the expansions on to World of Warcraft as I understand it do you think this is actually something that people will genuinely go back and and put time into or is it something that people think they want but actually it's nostalgia talking and they'll soon miss all the quality of life improvements of the recent versions and the, just the huge expanse of it. I think it will be one and then the other. Um, mm. I am also someone who is nostalgic for a vanilla wow. Of course. But um, because, you know, it was, again, the interesting thing about Blizzard is, and I don't mean this uh, as a knock against them, but they haven't ever really come out with anything brand new. What they do is they no. Is, and they refine them to this blinding polish. You know, WoW came from EverQuest, Warcraft came from Dune 2, Diablo came from Roguelikes, Hearthstone, Magic the Gathering, etc., etc. But they they just take these these ideas and they just make them colorful and simple and addictive and fun. And so I think that I think that Vanilla WoW was definitely that. But yeah. you know. I also remember I didn't play that game as much as uh, as a lot of people did. I'm, I'm not really big into MMOs for various reasons, but um, yeah. I remember you know getting to high levels required a lot of a lot of grinding. But I, I think it will do well enough, if not more so, because again, it's it's almost like a new wing of the Blizzard Museum or the Blizzard Fan Park. Like, hey, if you liked this, wow, here's a ride for you. And I definitely think it will find its audience. Especially because yeah. it's officially supported. You know, I know that this kind of stemmed from fan hosted servers that Blizzard shut down, but to their credit, they recognize the demand and they are they're acting on it. I, I can't believe it would take a lot of resources for them to pull this off. And I'm no. sure that that uh, fan support will will more than um, make up for, for any for any effort this will take on their part. And uh, and I should say, as uh, as an entity, Kana Rince is you know very much in favour of uh, game preservation, and obviously with uh, stuff where it's there's a lot of uh, digital involved, that's uh, that's a big deal. So from that point of view, then yeah, this is a really welcome thing. It would be nice if you could play whichever uh, iteration of Warcraft you wanted to play along the way, but that would obviously be a, a lot more a lot more complicated. Yeah, I, I almost worry that they're they've kind of like cracked the lid on Pandora's box because I've, I've been possibly so. Well, you know, people say like, Oh, well, now that we got vanilla, wow, can we get a burning crusade? Wow. And a Ralph. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. Ah, you're probably going to have to, they're either going to have to go like all in, like create different servers for each of these or just draw them <sighs> massively split up your player base. Yeah, exactly. They can self cannibalize. So there's always that danger. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So back to the book for those who don't know, because people will be listening to this who subscribe to our podcast, but aren't necessarily uh, versed in all the ways of uh, all things Blizzard. What's the uh, what's the title refer to? Could you explain the story behind the uh, the, the cow references? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I'm actually kind of pr- kind of proud of this title, which is significant for me because I usually hate naming things. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, Good job. I, I keep a project journal for everything. And, and in fiction, I just call the protagonist protag in all caps and eventually <laughs> right, this guy either, or this girl or whoever needs a name. But this one, the title refers to kind of the, the emotional and creative roller coaster ride that the readers will go on in the book, but also that blizzards North and South went on heaven for the good times, hell for the bad times, secret cow levels, because there were just a lot of blizzard blizzard and blizzard North were both kind of defined by, 
fun and, and antics. Um, there is actually, there wasn't a secret cow level in Diablo, but that kind of, that rumor caught fire. And so they made a secret cow level in Diablo 2. So it's a literal reference, but it's yeah. also, you're going to read about a lot of fun times and camaraderie uh, in Stay Wallace and 2. So you'll walk alongside these people and you'll go through the ups and the downs, the hell, the heaven and the hell, and, and also the, the crazy secret cow level type antics and zaniness. Excellent. Um, talking about StarCraft then, what was it that uh, inspired the folks to make a sci-fi real-time strategy game? Uh, I guess it was, I guess it came about in the wake of the sort of RTS boom with Command and & Conquer and things like that? It certainly did. Um, so uh, there were a few motivations, I would say. First was they, those guys all loved Warhammer and Warhammer um, 40K. In fact, in Stay Wellness of One, I relayed an anecdote from Patrick Wyatt, who said that we actually wanted to make a Warhammer game, but we couldn't get the license, so we just made Warcraft. It was our own thing. And mm. so then for StarCraft, they said, you know, we're all kind of tired of of orcs and dragons and griffins, so let's let's do something sci-fi. But they also knew they needed to capitalize on their their reputation as a premier developer of, of real-time strategy games. Um, and then one chapter... Uh, which actually, there are a number of full chapters people can read online right now. Uh, but in an earlier one that I have not shared, um, mm-hmm. I talked to them about what's called, somewhat derisively, Orcs in Space, which was, um, <laughs> the StarCraft was originally built on the Warcraft 2 engine, but it looked way yeah. more, so they scrapped it. So they kind of went back to the drawing board and and retooled it. They were all big fans of, of Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, But um, according to an anecdote, they told me that I relayed in book one, they couldn't get the license. So they said, well, we'll we'll make our own thing. And that's where Warcraft. But after after Warcraft and Warcraft 2, a lot of people in the company said, you know, the logical thing to do is Warcraft 3. But another group said, "Ah, we've done a lot of swords and fireballs. What's new? And so they they took the Warcraft 2 engine and they made StarCraft. But the the first iteration was very derivative of Warcraft 2, you know, bright purple, kind of cartoony, colorful graphics, which worked for Warcraft 2, but uh, StarCraft ended up being a lot grittier, which I think was was the right direction. So they scrapped it, and they just very carefully iterated over time. And you mentioned the the RTS boom. That was a significant factor in StarCraft's direction because uh, one, one thing I talk about in the chapter that is available to read is that uh, everyone at Blizzard was actually very nervous and apprehensive mm. uh, regard to StarCraft's success. Everyone believed in the game, but they said, the way they put it to me, one guy put it to me, you know, this was before Blizzard was Blizzard. This was before mm. anything we released just immediately, you know, slaughtered any competition. And uh, someone asked, I think it was uh, Johnny Wilson, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Computer Gaming World, he asked Pat Wyatt in an interview, he said, you know, there's, there's tons of RTS games coming out Next month, the month after that, today, tomorrow, what makes StarCraft any different? And then Pat said, you know, all I can really say is we've put a lot of effort into balance and polish, and we think we do that better than anybody else. And that was really one of StarCraft's highlights. I mean, it was, you know, for example, one of their competitors at the time was Total Annihilation, which was a yeah. great And part of the, the gimmick of that game was the developer Cave Dog, I think, uh, released a free unit every week, which had to be a balanced nightmare. 
But Blizzard, instead of perpetually adding on, they said, we're having, we have three races. They're all unique. They're all very carefully balanced. They're all very different. And that's really what helps StarCraft stand out. Yeah, absolutely. And did did, did it, this is asking you to pray see like half your book in a couple of sentences, but did it come together easily? <laughs> you know, StarCraft? As a matter of fact, there was about a 14-month crunch. It was a, it was a very difficult development, but everyone just, everyone believed in it. You know, there were crazy hours worked, but none of it was, was mandatory. Everyone stayed, mm. they wanted to be there and they wanted to make this game. That's good to know. Uh, and when it came out, did anyone there have even the slightest inkling that it would go on to become this massive thing, this huge competitive scene, especially in Korea? I mean, the, just any idea whatsoever? I don't think they, they knew it would blow up to that extent. They knew they had an audience. Yeah. But I think the Korean scene really caught everyone by surprise, and it certainly influenced development of StarCraft Two. Yes. But really, you know, the important takeaway is no one at Blizzard ever, ever thought, well, this will sell well because we're Blizzard. They were just trying to make the best game possible. And yeah. To an extent, I think they were always taken by surprise by their success. I assume, obviously, from a financial point of view, it was very welcome. But did do you think having that, you're talking about, you know, look, looking back at your games and looking at the mistakes, is obviously once you've got a serious uh, competitive scene with money riding on it, people's livelihoods and careers, that actually adds a whole lot of pressure to your game design elements, doesn't it? Because you can't afford to, you know, you can't really have broken things anymore and suddenly your your resources are being used just to micromanage the the latest iteration of the game so it must change everything it does and that certainly came to the fore later but it didn't for starcraft or or for brood war which uh followed just eight months later you know they were both released in 1998 yeah um, so you know i i think that that was probably to the to the benefit of StarCraft and its community at that time, because, you know, you see today where a lot of developers right out of the gate, they say, we want to be an eSport. And so it's almost like they focus yeah. on entering that competitive scene, but maybe the game suffers. Mm. The audience just dries up because today there's so many different games, so many different types of media competing for attention that people just kind of move from one thing onto the next. And so I think that StarCraft benefited from the fact that Blizzard was just out to make the best damn RTS ever. And I'm right. a little biased, but I do still, I, as much as I like StarCraft 2, I do still think StarCraft 1 is just the pinnacle of, of balance and design. It, it's The way I describe it is it's paper, rock, scissors, where scissors can still break rock if it's sharp enough. And it's <laughs> really just such a fun and timeless game. Remastered sucked me right back in last summer. Yeah, I kind of it's kind of frustrating to me uh not not cuz I'm too cheapskate to buy it but uh, it's kind of frustrating now that StarCraft 2 is free and uh, StarCraft Remastered you have to buy it which is fair enough but uh, I'd quite I'd quite like to go back and play the original actually. Um yeah. but there you go. I should find find the uh, find the money. Um are there any were there any legends like the the cow level um or anything similar do you, that you know of or or were there any actual, you know, cool easter eggs or stuff hidden away in starcraft that uh or rumors surrounding what may or may not be hidden within that code did you find out any nuggets um not so much in that really that game had a lot of chief code cheat codes that kind of poked fun 
at other Blizzard games. There was one code. I don't remember what it did. It was called There Is No Cow Level. I think it might have been like a map. Ah, uh, right, yeah. But really, it was Blizzard Entertainment has kind of this trademark sense of humor where they like to be irreverent within their own worlds. And so there were things like from Warcraft 2 where you could, if you kept clicking on a unit, it would go through its its barks, they're called, its little lines, but then it would start, it would say things like, stop poking me, you know. StarCraft hmm. had a lot of that. So it was much more about, about that type of, of Easter egg and sense of humor, whereas Blizzard North kind of did their own thing with, you know, secret cow levels and, and things like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, this this wouldn't be covered in your book because it's historical, but just curious as somebody who obviously, you know, knows the scene and, and the developer and what's going on, StarCraft 2 appears to be kind of maybe dying out. I know the player base increased with, with the free-to-play uh, element coming in last year, but overall it seems to be that players are moving on to uh, other things. Um, what's What do you see in the future? Do you think they're going to stick with two or are they going to release a three, try to win everyone back? Obviously it's a far more kind of um, unforgiving market now in a way. It's It's really tough to say. I mean, my gut says that StarCraft 2... The franchise, except for where two stands and, of course, remastered, might go on hiatus for a while because RTS games just don't. They're kind of like arena shooters such as Quake and Unreal. They just don't really move the needle like they used to. I think that uh, MOBAs have kind of taken their place, which is a shame Mm. because I love the strategy and tactics of MOBAs, but I love the resource management and base building of of games like StarCraft. Um, So two things. I, I think that... If there is StarCraft 3, Blizzard being Blizzard, they know they can wait another 10, 15 years to make one. Um, but also, I think if if people want to see any real-time strategy game from them, I think Warcraft's time is is, is coming due. Mm. Uh, they're, in a, they're in a difficult spot there because WoW has obviously continued the story, and if they release an RTS game, they're kind of splitting their universe, like what's canon, what's not. Yeah. But I, I really think that that a new Warcraft could really revitalize the the RTS scene in a way that really only Blizzard can at this point. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to doubt any other developers, but I think it was during E3 <laughs> that um, EA it must have been whoever holds the Command and Conquer license now announced a new Command and Conquer game. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't need that. I want another proper Command and Conquer. So I really feel like. The only developer with enough cachet in the RTS space to really just cr- kind of create another boom is is Blizzard, and I think Warcraft would be the game to do it because Warcraft, or sorry, Starcraft might be at peak saturation for now. We've had three installments of Warcraft two; we have remastered. I think that it needs to rest for a bit. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And for your, uh, for Diablo, then thinking back to the development and the conversations you've had, how what philosophy did did they go into uh, making the sequel with what, what were they looking to improve upon and how did they do that? Just one quote. Uh, this is a Wikipedia quote, lazy, but uh, Eric Schaefer said Diablo two never had an official complete design document. For the most part, we just started making up new stuff. Does that tally with what your interviews uh, found? Yes. That's, that's one reason the game was in development for, for three years. There was never, no one there was really saying, okay, no more content. End point. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. A lot of the people I talked to were still kind of frustrated by that because they said, that's why we were there for so many hours. That's why so many of our relationships suffered. 
But they would also say, but it's also what made the game so great. I mean, there were certain late additions such as mercenaries, you know, companions you can hire, the secret caliber, things that someone just thought up and did that I don't know that Diablo 2 would have been as huge uh, as it was without those things. So feature creep in game development is, is again, it's a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, you have to spend a lot of time and effort working on these things. But on the other hand, you might think of something off the cuff that comes on to be one of the, the yeah. selling of your game. I mean, I suppose the modern example is uh, imagine if Epic had said, no, we don't have time to do Battle Royale in Fortnite. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just imagine how the landscape of games would have changed if they would have just put their foot down and said, no, 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 we don't want more work, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of uh, great development stories where it's been the last minute addition or the or the the kind of the thing that the team has been so enthused to do off their own back. Like uh, the Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening was, you know, effectively a, a kind of you know out of hours project because they basically they wanted to do something different to link to the past. And obviously, there's the uh, GoldenEye multiplayer, which was yeah, just not even part of the the design at all. So yeah. Uh, that's that's interesting in itself. And uh, here we are in 2018, the middle of 2018. Um, earlier this month before E3, I think it was then confirmed at E3, but there was a job listing for Blizzard effectively announcing a new Diablo project. Um, have you got any thoughts as to what that might be? I realize you might know and you might not be able to say, but uh, if not, if that's the case, what would you like it to be? I would like it to be a Diablo 4 for a number of reasons. Right. Um, I mean, right, you know, reason A is I'm a Diablo fan. Yeah. Uh, and even though I, I thought 3 kind of stumbled out of the gate, I thought it ended up being a great game. Mm. And I just want more Diablo. I think reason number two actually has a lot to do with Diablo 3. Uh, Diablo 3 stumbled out of the gate because I think Blizzard. As much as I enjoy the products, I think they made a lot of bad calls. The auction house, real money. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible idea. Mm. Uh, you absolutely cannot kink the hose of Diablo 3's loot system. It has to flow. And, yeah. and they kink the hose. And the other thing was, um, I think in a lot of ways, they still felt kind of beholden to Diablo 2, as they as they should have. That game is, is arguably, you know, the... It's kind of like Diablo 2 is to Doom what Diablo 1 was to Wolfenstein. Like the first one was good. The second one was just great and, right. and kind of set the template for going forward. But I think that this time around, Blizzard Entertainment knows the lessons. They, they learn lessons from Diablo 3 and can hopefully make Diablo 4 this great epic game right from the get go. Right. I uh, just found an article earlier today um, in Forbes written by a Paul Tassie. Obviously, this is just his opinion, but the, the headline is, I'm not sure I trust Blizzard with a new Diablo game. Uh, and he makes some points. Uh, I have no idea what the state of the Diablo team is right now. Blizzard abandoned Diablo 3 in a weird way. Uh, they're going to have to monetize it somehow. Uh, does any of this uh, ring alarm bells for you or does that does that no, no empathy it, it, there? I think some of it might be hyperbole. I think that there is a tendency in game communities to just insist that developers support their favorite game forever. Yeah. Uh, I, I honestly don't see Diablo 3 as abandoned. No, it's, I don't. I didn't get that at all. 
<laughs> you know, like the updates, aside from the occasional patch and season reset, are going to have to stop sometime. That's just how yeah. Illinois works. Um, no, I, I don't see the game as, as abandoned at all. You know, I think they had an opportunity to release a second full expansion pack. Instead, we got the Necromancer, which is, again, another callback to Diablo 2, satisfying a certain audience there. Mm. But I think that their decision not to go kind of whole hog and make another character class, another act, another boss, another story segment means that they said, you know what, let's just move on to the next Diablo. Because Blizzard really, if like if you notice, if you look at their history, none of their franchises except some of their early stuff they did on console ever dies. Like Diablo, Warcraft, and Starcraft, Diablo is a company of many pillars now, but those are the three pillars. They are the pillars on which yes. all the yeah, I mean, even Hearthstone is a Warcraft spinoff. So I don't think you're going to see any of those three ever die. They just really go through periods of hibernation. Yeah. And, um, I think it's about time for, for a, a new Diablo game. All right. Uh, a couple of questions from the community. Actually, this is from a contributor from the team. Desmond says, Blizzard are notorious for long development cycles, but also hyper-polished and enjoyable games. But do you think as they're dabbling in console games more and more that it's going to or already is having an effect on their development times? I would say no, because Blizzard is this this juggernaut in so many ways. And one of those ways is they really they have separate development teams. Um I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the overlap is, if any, between mm. the Diablo 3 console and PC teams. Mm. But use that game as an example. Blizzard, they didn't want to cannibalize, and they also didn't want to broaden their focus too much. They released it on PC. They took the time to kind of fix what was wrong with it and improve on it. And yeah. then a few days later, it came out on console. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, I know this might be heresy because I am, I'm a diehard comes <laughs> to Diablo, but I actually <laughs> I think the PlayStation. Well, I play on PlayStation Four, but I think the console version of Diablo Three is as good as the PC version, and mm. even better in some mm. ways. Um, yeah, I played it on PS Four after I played the three hundred and sixty version, I believe, when that when that came mm. out, uh, and it was fine. But yeah, the PS Four version, especially the the kind of the tail, you know, the late day version, there's there's it's ridiculous amount of content and it's incre- you know it's been patched up to the eyeballs so everything functions beautifully and yeah yeah so so i guess the answer is no i think if anything you know blizzard as big as they are i think it goes back to what i said earlier they're never going to try to muddy their own water they're not going to release just the flood of content that that splinters their audience they think they'll do one thing and they'll do it well and then they'll move on to the next thing and you know if they have separate teams then all the better because then each can kind of keep its own discipline in mind as they as they work Hmm. Hmm. and uh dusk versus tweak muses i've always preferred the sci-fi setting of starcraft over warcraft and i find the world to be extremely rich and exciting i wonder if the starcraft universe wouldn't be a great sandbox for other types of games though the failed starcraft ghost makes me think that blizzard is less than enthusiastic about that idea as a fan of starcraft should i be thankful blizzard isn't churning out games with lesser quality or is this a hesitance on their part that maybe i could be a bit impatient with any thoughts, David? Uh, I I think I think it's a I think it's good that they're hesitant. I don't think he should be. I don't think this person should be should be impatient because I think that you know it, whether you've been a Blizzard fan for for a year or dating back to their beginning, you probably know by now that they take time to do things. And mm-hmm. in the end, yeah. 
worthwhile. So I would say be patient, enjoy the the myriad other games that they and, and all these other publishers have coming out and, and just be excited for the next thing whenever it finally drops. Sounds reasonable. Uh, yes, so listeners, we covered uh, Diablo 3 back in issue 265, if you haven't heard it already, and StarCraft 2 Wings of Liberty, because that's all there was back then in issue 71. Uh, David, before we uh, do uh, plugs and links and all that kind of thing, uh, one question I'm wondering now from my own personal interest point of view is, have you got any desire in you to do a book going all the way back to Lost Vikings, Rock and Roll Racing, Blackthorn, the really early Blizzard stuff? Because I'm sure there's some interesting stories to be told there, working with the 16-bit system and all that sort of thing, the, the real foundations of the company. Uh, I wrote it, Stay Wild with Book One. It's all in there, is it? It's all in there. Yeah, what I did is I went back to the, the beginning of both Condor uh, and Blizzard Entertainment, founded as Silicon and Synapse, and I, I started with um, with the console projects that both studios worked on, and I right. got a lot of anecdotes about Lost Vikings and Blackthorn and Rock and Roll Racing and, on, and all those games. Ah, uh, well, forgive my ignorance, that's because uh, I didn't interview about that book. Uh, it'll now go on my list. Yeah, th- those are games that a lot of people still ask about. And yeah. uh, I always want to make sure people know, like, hey, you know, I know Stay Wild and Listen is obviously a Diablo quote, but it's both Blizzards. Uh, both books cover both Blizzards and all their projects because my firm belief is you can't you can't write about one Blizzard without writing yeah. about them. They were so interconnected. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I definitely do a deep dive into all those games in the first Stay Wild and Listen book. Oh, fantastic. Okay, that's, uh, that's going on the Amazon list. And um, yeah, I, I was actually thinking about the Lost Vikings the other day because uh, I got a SNES Classic Mini for my birthday and I was uh, adding ROMs, as you do. And uh, and of course, uh, the Lost Vikings should be on there. was was Donkey Kong Country 2. Uh, it's yeah. a mission of a crime against humanity. So yeah, I, 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 don't know what that, well, I don't know why that one wasn't on there. Um, <laughs> maybe they struck some, I don't know. There's there's still complicated uh, wranglings between them and Rare, I think. But uh, yes, my, my SNES Mini now contains about 50-odd games instead of instead of 20. Uh, anyway, that's completely separate story, although there is a link because Blizzard made some games. But uh, yeah, so backing the book, this is uh, the vital stuff to get uh, this second volume uh, finished and made and into a real 3D object that you can order off Amazon or wherever else. Uh, what do people need to do? Where do they need to go? Uh, you can go to kickstarter.com slash projects slash David L. Craddock slash stay a while and listen book two Roman numeral two. And there's a dash between each word. So stay dash a while dash and and so forth. Or just check out my Twitter at David L. Craddock and the link to the Kickstarter is pinned right at the top. Superb. And uh, what's the form factor of it? Is it going to uh, sit nicely on the shelf with volume one? Is it the same? Is it going to be the same dimensions and all that kind of thing? I, I like I like the physical uh, to talk the physical object to the book. What kind of paper do you know you're going to be using? Sure. Yeah, I think those specifics we're still working on, but I can okay. tell you will be. So the one thing to know about the campaign is that I'm running a very tight ship. I didn't want, you know, 18 reward tiers. There are only three. There's ebook, signed yep. paperback and then sign paperback with a personalized inscription. And the paperback will be a six by nine. Um, so it'll fit nicely on your shelf with the first one. Superb. Okay. Uh, well, listeners, do check that out. David, thanks for getting in touch and joining us again. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again for project number, whatever it is next. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you for having me on.